Hey, it's Dan. Before turning to today's episode, I'd like to ask you to consider supporting the show. If you like this episode of Prognosis Ohio, please help us to make more by becoming a Patreon for just $3 a month. This is a shoestring operation, a project we pull together late at night and on weekends. But podcasting costs also add up to some serious money. Now, I don't hope to ever make anything off of this show, to be clear, but we'll use whatever support we receive to pay for the technical platforms, for recording and hosting, things like that, so we can keep spotlighting community voices and important issues here in Ohio. To do that, please go to prognosisohio.com. That's prognosisohio.com. And thanks. When I talk with students and other folks around the state about healthcare, the cost of prescription drugs is almost always at the top of their list of grievances. And with good reason. On this show, we've talked about the issue from a few different angles. There are, of course, the Martin Shkrelis, those evil profiteers that we all hold up as a symbol of the system in crisis. But we've also talked on the show about the high cost of insulin and attempts to control it, as well as efforts in Ohio to develop policy that ensures that Ohioans on Medicaid, Medicare, and also on private insurance insurance can afford the drugs they need. Today, I talk with an old friend of the show, Lauren Anthes of the Center for Community Solutions, about a new paper he's got out with some ideas about controlling the cost of drugs in Ohio. Lauren and I are joined by Anthony Chacha of 46 Brooklyn, an Ohio-based nonprofit whose purpose is to improve the accessibility and usability of U.S. drug pricing data. Anthony's an expert on all things pharmaceutical, and he added some real heft to the conversation. As you'll hear, we provide context for Lauren's paper, which we'll be linking to in the show notes, but also get into a discussion about some different ways we might approach pharmaceutical policy more generally in Ohio. Lauren Anthes serves as the William C. and Elizabeth M. Troyhoff Chair in Health Planning, and he leads the Community Solutions Center for Medicaid Policy. Making his first appearance and our new best pharmaceutical industry expert friend, Anthony Chacha is the Chief Strategy Officer for Three Axis Advisors, a consultancy based in Dayton, and he's the Chief Executive Officer for 46 Brooklyn Research, an Ohio-based nonprofit dedicated to making prescription drug pricing data more accessible and understandable for the public, something we really need. Okay, now to my conversation with Lauren and Anthony. Hey guys, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you. Ditto. You know, I was thinking, uh, I just wanted to start a, a simple, quaint little healthcare podcast <laughs> and have, you know, down-to-earth conversations about issues of great importance. Mm. And um, I'm reading your paper, Lauren, about pharmaceutical pricing, um, our state's relationship with pharmacies, and it is super complicated, right? So uh, we've been talking about Medicaid a lot on the show, uh, which is, you know, as it should be, Medicaid is super important. In fact, our last episode was also to a certain degree about Medicaid. Right. Um, but today we're going to be talking about the, the pharmaceutical piece. So what we're, we're going to try to do is to keep it, um, you know, uh, as, as non-wonky as possible, but also with the idea that folks are going to have links to various things we're going to provide them that they can do a little bit deeper dives with. Um, you know, a few months back on this show, so I had Marty Schladen on from the Ohio Capital Journal and Marty uh, called pharmacy benefit managers, um, he called them, um, you know, and they're one part of this story, but he called them the most important healthcare issue you've never heard of or, or something like that, you know. <laughs> and it is hard because so many of these technical issues, when, when people hear about them, their eyes glaze over or their, their ears clam up or whatever the metaphor is I'm looking for here. <laughs> There's a lot more to say about this than PBMs, though. So I want, I want to turn to you, Lauren, just, just to, to frame things since this 
episode was kind of framed initially around this paper that you've released uh, with the Center for Community Solutions. So in the simplest form, what's the issue with pharmaceutical pricing in Ohio? I know there's a lot of pieces to that, but like, let's start to give listeners a little bit of a, a way in. Yeah, of course. Um, so, you know, oftentimes I talk to policymakers and uh, when I talk to policymakers, they're always interested in cost uh, with the Medicaid program. You know, it it's a big part of our budget. Most of it's from the federal government, um, but it covers one in four Ohioans and there's always questions about efficiency. And so I was interested in looking into, you know, a, a few different areas and that's been my research for the last, uh, you know, couple of years. Uh, how can we examine the various cost centers of the program and think about efficiency? And drugs have to be a part of that conversation, right? The U.S. pays more for prescription drugs than any other country. Mm-hmm. And according to the Organization for Economic Cooperation to Development, the U.S. spent per capita on drugs in 2018. Uh, Not surprisingly, drug companies derive the largest share of their quarterly and annual revenues from the United States, which also tends to be their first stop when they seek regulatory approval. Um, Just between 2012 and 2017, drug spending in the United States increased nearly 29% while overall health spending rose less than 25%. And since 2013, the growth in prescription drug spending has exceeded uh, gross domestic product growth, which means the industry is consuming an increasingly large share of the U.S. economy. So basically, I was I was trying to see what the role of Medicaid is in all of this, right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, the Medicaid prescription market, if you want to call it that, is very different than the private market. And that's why, um, you know, I'm glad to have the actual knowledgeable parachute that is Antonio available <laughs> to us today. <laughs> yeah. Um, because, you know, there, there's a lot of detail here. And even for me, for someone who's been looking into this, policy here for for more than a decade pharmacy is like one of those like dark storm clouds i never really wanted to enter and unfortunately um you know you have to you have to grab your shield and sword or whatever other sort of game of thrones like metaphor you want to use and just like face the beast so that's the premise of the paper is to really give a a primer about where ohio is where it's going and some other options that might be available to it so Antonio, it's really great to meet you. First of all, we've had Lauren on the show before, so listeners, you know, they're they're meeting you for the first time. Um, and it turns out, uh, for listeners to know that we live like a block from each other, which is <laughs> like a super pandemic moment to find out that I've probably been you know walking by your house on my daily walk <laughs> every day. Um, and so I want to set the stage here again a little bit more, um, and maybe by way of introduction to you, you can just tell us a little bit about your organization and the kind of work you do, and then maybe add anything you want to Lauren's, um, you know, opening comments there. Absolutely. Uh, Yeah, I've had a a weird journey into the drug supply chain. Um, I'm born and raised in a pharmacy family. So my dad's a hospital pharmacist. uh, And he worked on the side and independent up in Cleveland, Ohio, uh, when I was a kid. Uh, I aim to follow in his footsteps. So at Ohio State, I, I started working as a pharmacy technician and uh, entered the pre-pharmacy program. It was right around organic chemistry time that I decided there were better things to do with my life uh, <laughs> than become a pharmacist. And uh, so I actually diverted course over to journalism. And, uh, and that uh, parlayed into eventually a job running magazines and uh, publications for the Ohio Pharmacists Association. And so in that capacity, I eventually moved into a role in government affairs where I was introduced to, you know, really the, the pharmacist lens of the transaction, uh, which, uh, you know, I'm a dummy at, the, at that point. I'm thinking, OK, pharmacy buys drug from manufacturer. 
pharmacy has markup and then, you know, that's the transaction. And it, it ain't even close. <laughs> that's like the quaint model of American capitalism, right? I mean, this, this idea, you just want to believe that there's buyers and sellers and then like, that's it. Yeah, there's like, I, I learned like, like, like every month I learned about a new layer that was embedded in there that I had no idea existed. And before I knew it, the acronyms in Alphabet Soup just became, you know, an absolute blur. Um, to bring it back to, to, to Marty, um, the reason that um, I started to get obsessed with this was if you don't know anything, if you know anything about trade associations, trade associations are the complaints department for the respective constituencies. And so pharmacists have always complained about PBMs because they feel like they don't get paid enough or they feel they get paid inconsistently. And whether they're right or wrong, um, yeah, I became very interested and fascinated with the way that PBMs acting as the middleman between the insurance company and the pharmacy and essentially brokering the deal on every claim. I became fascinated with how that was being done. Um, we ended up seeing a problem in our Medicaid program where pharmacists were getting hammered on reimbursements. And then when I went back to the state and said, hey, what, what did I miss? The state turned around and said, well, we don't know what you're talking about because we're paying more for drugs than we ever have. And so that disconnect between pharmacists getting paid less, the state getting charged more, it was what like really drove me in and said, okay, regardless of whether pharmacists get paid fairly or not, there is clearly something happening in the middle of this transaction, which is when I sat down with Marty Schladen when he was at the Columbus Dispatch and Kathy Kandisky, because we had started uncovering data from CMS that actually highlighted a growing delta between the real cost and the and what the state was being charged, which turned into their side effect series. Um, fast forward the tape, um, that little bit of obsession has grown into a larger obsession, which is not just diagnosing that delta between what the pharmacy gets paid and what the end payer gets charged, but saying, look, this is a multi-layered cake. And we, if, if, if we as society care about prescription drug costs, especially the degree that they're rising, we deserve to know every single ingredient in that layer cake. And so we started 46 Brooklyn Research as a nonprofit dedicated to using publicly available drug pricing data to make the entire drug supply chain more understandable and digestible to the general public. Great. Now, that's a really nice way in. It kind of reminds me a little bit of some of the conversations around tort reform, right? I know like you know, Lauren and I, for example, we work with a lot of medical students and they're very excited about this idea of not getting sued, right? Well, okay, that's one thing. But then the question is, well, where does this money go, right? Where, where do the savings accrue? And you didn't start to see the savings actually accruing where they would think they would, like, for example, affecting the cost of healthcare at the uh, the patient side. It was getting bottlenecked somewhere. Somebody was grabbing this money. And it's, it seems like the pharmacy industry kind of has a similar dynamic. I don't know if I'm getting that right or if that analogy holds. It absolutely does. I mean, at, at the end of the day, everything is baked, uh, based on fake prices, and this is a lesson in pharmacy, but it's an extrapolation to healthcare and, and more broadly. It's you have a fake sticker price and then nobody knows the real prices underneath and chaos ensues. So uh, let me turn back to Lauren for a second. So, you know, as, as I understand it, the, the piece that we're talking about, um, with, which is really about the, the state's policy approach to all of this mm-hmm. um, and, and the reason why price is the problem. You know, it's the old uh, Uva Reinhardt, uh, you know, the, it's the price is stupid uh, <laughs> um, kind of uh, mantra. Do we still need to make this case? I mean, I find it a little bit shocking that people don't know 
that prices are really the big story here. There's so many other variables we talk about in healthcare, but most people who look at an issue like this say, no, no, it's, it's prices. That's basically it. There are other things, but that, that's nibbling around the edges. Can you tell me a little bit about kind of like the perception out there and also from lawmakers? You mentioned lawmakers before. Mm-hmm. I wonder if they get this or if they tend to point elsewhere. Yeah, you know, um, there's enough alphabet soup in government and policy anyway. And I think this is one area that just makes it even worse. Um, but, you know, it may be, it may be worthwhile to, to create that distinction about how price works in the context of Medicaid policy and then beyond. And that's where I might need Antonio's help to sort of explain how the, the private uh, side of this, the private procurement side of this plays into that. Because I think it, it's important to understand what the policy tools there then uh, become. So with Medicaid, you know, Medicaid really just pays for dispensed drugs. And the price is based on what's known as actual acquisition cost or AAC. So some states do this directly, but most states, including Ohio, determine this through a survey of retail pharmacies, which then creates something called the NADAC, if I'm getting that right, uh, the National yep. Average D- Drug Acquisition Cost. That is uh, pulled together uh, by the Federal Department of Health and Human Services. And then CMS established the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, establishes a price limit called the federal upper limit. Uh, those states can implement maximum allowable cost provisions. So there's already been three acronyms, right? AAC, NADAC, uh, actually CMS, HHS, and MAC. So basically what states do is they pay the lowest combination of dispensing fees to pharmacists to dispense drugs, plus the the lowest of either a, uh, actual acquisition costs, the federal upper limit, or uh, this maximum allowable cost. How manufacturers set price, though, is proprietary. So we don't know how they set price. So like, if I'm talking about insurance, and let's talk about the Affordable Care Act, we have something called the medical loss ratio, right? Which basically says, hey, you know, insurance companies uh, can only, um, you know, uh, basically make as much margin as 15%. And then the rest of that money has to actually go into medical care. The same is not true with pharmaceuticals, right? So this is like the Martin Shkreli sort of business model uh, where he has enough money to pay Wu-Tang like millions of dollars for one album that should be heard by the public, um, you know, Wu-Tang. But nevertheless, um, you know, uh, these these prices that get set by manufacturers is, is proprietary, and that means states have little other options available to them. Um, some of the tools that they have are things like preferred drug lists, uh, prior authorization, which is really just a utilization management tool. In other words, like mother may eyes that, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, physicians, pharmacists, and others have to go through before dispensing a drug, and then drug utilization review. Um, so, you know, the, the availability of those tools are limited. And then there's also the element of rebates in all of this, which creates sort of a financial incentive um, between states and manufacturers to establish what drugs get included or not included as a part of the formulary. And that can end up being big bucks. Uh, you know, for the state of Ohio, you know, we're talking about uh, hundreds of millions of dollars every year that end up back to the state. Um, so it's a, it's a really complicated system. But, you know, I think the big takeaway for all this alphabet soup, for all these different sort of mechanisms is the establishment of price is a, quote, proprietary process. So we don't know, really, if the cost for producing any particular drug um, is actually getting reflected in how the prices are being established. And when you have regulatory capture, where you have a system 
wherein uh, monopolistic control over drugs is essentially guaranteed through law, um, mm-hmm. it makes it a pretty sweet deal for a lot of those manufacturers. Now, is that true? The, the, the proprietary, uh, you know, aspect of this is that true? Also, I mean, well, okay, take a, take a step back. A lot of these drugs are developed using federal funds uh, through various research, you know, grant awards and things like that. Is does that change the proprietary nature at all, or is that just because in many countries it does, right? But in in the United States, it doesn't seem to at all. Or, or is is there more to that story? Maybe Antonio wants to speak to that. Yeah, so uh, certainly the there's there's uh, certain obligations that go along with grant funding and things like that. But let's just say for the sake of this conversation, they're not material in in the way that that, you, that you're talking about. That if the government funds the drug, they get to name the price. That that definitely is not happening, <laughs> not at all. In the way that I that I would look at government funding, at least in the U.S. context, is uh, think of it as incentive. You know. Sometimes we say, okay, government funded a drug, they should be able to set the price, regardless of whether you agree with that or not. You know, we, we have a capitalist system, with, and is, the way it's supposed to work is the ability to set the price and have a protected patent is the incentive that we as society forfeit over the maker, the drug maker, because we want them to have that enticement to bring new products to market. And then when we have grants and anything like that through NIH or whoever, that is meant to kind of put the thumb on the scale to say, Look, you know, yes, we want you to have this incentive, but we also recognize that you might have adequate incentive to research perhaps orphan drugs or drugs that treat, you know, very, very specialized disease states. And that's in some ways you could say that's a that's a great philosophical design. But obviously, in implementation, that becomes very tricky because sometimes you could be paying way too much for something or you're paying for something that from an investment standpoint didn't have an, uh, the return on investment that we look for as society, or secondarily, the drug isn't used, you know, or isn't as valuable relative to other products that are already on the market to treat that disease as well. So because of a lot of the opacity with pricing, it is incredibly hard to judge whether or not we're getting a good bang for our buck for our investment, not just from a government standpoint, but in the private sector as well. So let's talk a little bit about uh, some of the possible remedies. I think we've diagnosed the problem decently here, and even though there's always more to say, um, and you know, I think we've also ascertained that there are a number of different reasons why people should care about this. You know, uh, you know, aside from the importance of making pharmaceuticals accessible to patients, which everybody should care about, if that doesn't persuade you, then getting built and or the uh, budgetary consequences of not solving this problem seem pretty extraordinary. I think COVID, I've been asking myself during COVID, you know, even before COVID, you know, the pharmaceutical industry was, um, you know, being subjected to pretty steady criticism. And I think I've seen over my career and a, a, a pretty steady incline there of just outrage, right? And Martin Shkreli is just one example of that. Um, but then we have, you know, everybody knows Pfizer and Moderna, and these names are kind of like, you know, after all the Purdue stuff, now we have the names of companies that are being talked about in nice ways. So I wondered if that was going to change the dynamics here. But let's talk about some of the solutions, you know, uh, as as we're we're, you know, trying to be solution-oriented people here. And your paper, Lauren, addresses a few of those. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, the, the Vladimir Lenin question, you know, what is what is to be done? <laughs> sure. Um, you know, I think that there are a couple options here when it comes to state government, Medicaid, 
in particular that are at least worthwhile thinking about and having a discussion on publicly. There's a lot. There's a lot of pieces that the state of Ohio have already sort of implemented here recently. I think the re-procurement of managed care, the sort of consolidation of the pharmacy benefit manager, having an oversight entity, which was just announced like a couple days ago. Those are all good steps. Um, but you know, if I'm thinking about some forward-thinking policy options. You know, the uh, Medicaid and CHIP Payment Advisory Commission um, talked about uh, essentially restricting the formulary or potentially implementing some waiting periods before uh, certain drugs that may um, uh, be a little bit more experimental or, you know, sort of first class drugs, um, you know, not just automatically saying, okay, Medicaid should reimburse this. Because here's the thing with Medicaid if it's FDA approved and you have uh, a pharmacy benefit in Medicaid, Medicaid's essentially going to pay for it, right? Um, and so this idea of closing the formulary gives the state more negotiation ability in how it might pay for things, what drugs may be included, that sort of thing. That has some controversy associated with it because then the sort of converse of that is people identify, well, you're, you might be creating access issues. Um, but I think it's, it's, you know, it's part of Medicaid to think uh, in terms of experimental sort of uh, potential policies. So this is why Massachusetts, for example, explored a closed formulary. There's also model legislation uh, that some uh, uh, folks at the National Association for State Health Policy put out, one about utilizing international reference rates, which tend to be much lower uh, than what the United States uses. Also mm -hmm. to find manufacturers for price increases that don't have clinical evidentiary support. So if you get a sudden increase in price and there's no clinical reason for doing so, uh, to basically prohibit that or issue fines. Um, and then this is my favorite, uh, you know, sort of thinking is leveraging uh, Section 1498 laws. So there's there's this law that the government has used before uh, that establishes government immunity from patent claims in cases where infringement serves the public good. So basically what you could do is you could go to a manufacturer and say, Here, here's the deal. We're going to claim eminent domain on your patent and we're yeah. going to require you to produce a certain amount of drugs and we're going to give you, quote unquote, reasonable compensation in exchange. My sort of like theoretical policy idea is, okay, if there is a drug that the price increase is, let's say, three sigma higher than the rest of a, you know, the drugs within the entirety of the formulary, that the state does an automatic investigation into exploring this policy option to say, well, okay, you're going to give us a critical supply. Louisiana tried this with hepatitis uh, C drugs because they saw huge cost uh, increases. Um, you know, it's one of those things where we, we've done it during times of war. Um, but you know, whether or not you could actually implement that sort of thing, I think, you know, the political feasibility is, is a question. But I think if, if anything, having the threat out there to, to automatically review your price or compel certain some activities by manufacturers might be good. Um, you know, there's, there's other things, too, that happen on the national level. You know, I, I think about House Resolution 3, you know, just a few years ago that tried to um, require Medicare to negotiate list prices under Medicare uh, part D, um, you know, it, the Congressional Budget Office 
research this question. Okay, if we constrain prices, does that affect R&D? And there is a cost benefit to that. I think that there is a question of, you know, if you are limiting price, if you're limiting the potential liquid capital that comes into a manufacturer, does that impact research? And the answer is yes, but the question is how far? You know, if you hear from the manufacturers, they might say, well, we'll never develop a new drug again. But the CBO said, well, maybe a couple drugs a year don't get developed. But that's where government may then play a role in sort of financing some of that R&D expense. Well, right. And lately we've been talking, you know, Jonas Salk has been in the in the air, right? And, you know, this idea that, you know, well, you develop a vaccine to address a major public health crisis or, or to, you know, to basically eliminate a, a disease. And that should be a huge issue of public good. But, uh, you know, now we have this question of, you know, of, of the vaccines. I mean, a lot of this has been resolved now. It's been going, I think, pretty well in terms of the access and all of that. But we still have these, you know, we have Martin Shkreli and then we have Jonas Salk. And we have this, like, idea that, like, you know, public health should somehow be put in a different kind of category in these conversations. Yeah. I mean, Dolly Parton might be one of the most important people in public health right now, <laughs> you know, for the, for this exact reason. I think that there's, you know, don't get me wrong, This this is like a... Uh, a technological um, a wonder that we have created as a civilization to look at pharmacology um, as a potential solution. I think that there are deeper questions around the, the notions of public good and then how much yeah. we actually pay for those things. So Antonio, what, what should we add to this conversation? I'm, I'm guessing you're thinking of, of a whole number of different things since you know I can see you kind of getting excited. <laughs> It's it's funny because I I I love Laura and he and he and I have had great conversations about this like literally all the policy solutions there I couldn't I couldn't disagree with more <laughs> and it's great it's great because like there are like there are major and we the, the thing is we all know the system is completely dysfunctionally broken and, and so when I look at when I look at drug prices what I say is what do drug manufacturers make drugs for and in the old days they made drugs for patients. And ultimately, they try to entice doctors to prescribe those medications to patients. Today, drug makers don't make drugs for patients. They make drugs for insurance companies to buy. And so, so the marketplace has really become distorted, not in, a, not in a bad way, because now we have coverage. And coverage is really good. But the problem that coverage creates is that all of a sudden, it's that's your ticket to the market. And so rather than earning a doctor's trust because your drug is better and efficiently priced, now it's, can I entice an insurer to cover my medication? And how do you entice them to cover that medication? It's by raising the price and increasing the discount because the discount is also able to be profit uh, for the insurance company and the PBM. So when we go to like, for example, you go to the grocery store, if you were to walk into Giant Eagle and your gallon of milk was $4, you say, okay, it's probably, I, in general, you know, I think that's a good milk price. If you walked into Kroger, and it was 10, you'd be like, I am getting screwed and I'm not going to get the Kroger milk unless it's like really, really good, <laughs> organic, almond, whatever the hell you want. <laughs> and and with, with drugs, you know, we have, we have allowed the insurers and PBMs to really dictate through formulary design, which is very good. You need, I, I, so I, I will say I am, I am in, on board with, uh, with um, closing formularies because that does create negotiating leverage. But the problem is that negotiation means that somebody is getting a secret price and somebody else is getting another secret price. And so what you have is a system of horrible inequity where big players that have sophistication and leverage can get the best net price, i.e. the bigger discount. 
And those patients that are paying in high deductible or small business that has no sophistication or leverage in the marketplace ends up paying a much higher rate than the large sophisticated companies. And so uh, we analyze international prices all the time. And so I get to see exactly what the sticker price is in the U.S. versus Australia or Canada. And there is no question we are getting a rotten deal when you're comparing the list prices. But the problem is, is that in those other countries, right or wrong, the, the government is negotiating that price. And I say that in quotes because they're saying you either you either give us this price or you're not coming in our borders. And so in the U.S., we have chosen not to do that for better or worse. And because of that, we have a system of discounting where Medicaid gets the best discounts and so on and so on down the line. Well, what that does is when a drug maker is told you have to discount, they can't lower their price. You know, Giant Eagle can't come in with the four dollar you know, milk because in order for you to actually achieve market share as a manufacturer, your incentive is to raise the price and just keep raking the discounts. And then everybody has a disproportionate share along the way. So in my opinion, I want in the U.S., I want the list, the list prices to become the real prices. A collateral damage of that is Medicaid will not get the special deal. And so we'll have our own policy things to grapple with. But it is impossible to divorce the conversation of price from the conversation of discounting. So I love this. This might be the first disagreement we've had on this podcast. <laughs> and, and I want to cultivate it. I want to care for it. I want to uh, exploit it. But uh, Lauren, what, do you want to just, uh, you know, offer any kind of final thoughts back to that? I'm, this is this is great, though. I'm totally fine with Medicaid getting the best price. I mean, that's the thing is that, you know, you know, the Medicaid population and the folks who are served by the program and the imperatives to address those needs mean to me that, you know, you should be able to negotiate what you need to negotiate. I mean, the alternative is, let's not forget that uh, pharmacy is an optional benefit in state Medicaid programs. So if they really, if they really wanted to put the rubber to the road and say like, well, let, let the market decide, they don't have to go for it. I think, I think that, you know, this, this is really not a disagreement in the larger global Mm -hmm. sense of things, because to me, to me, this is, this is all part of the same conversation. I remember, you know, to, to Antonio's point, when these conversations were first happening around PBMs in Ohio at the Joint Medicaid Oversight Committee, and Kathy came up to me, and she, Kathy Kandiski, and she said, so so what do you think of all this? And I don't know if you can bleep me out, Dan. I'll try to be polite with my language. I was like... I, I think we're, we have flexibility. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was like, this bullshit's everywhere. What do you mean? <laughs> you know, like, middlemanning is all part of it. And I think... I think the the thing that happens in this policy debate around pharmacy in particular, but it's it's endemic to health policy, is we don't look at the root cause of the issue. The root cause mm-hmm. of the issue in part is that the prices make no sense. Like there is no logic to it, right? To, to Antonio's point, to my point, at the end of the day, we don't know why the prices are the prices, right? We we hear that it's because of R&D, but there's no real inspection to that. Um, and, you know, the fact that it's so proprietary that there isn't some look back into the margin that actually gets developed, to me, I think is really the root cause of the issue because, you know, I, I, it's as much attention that gets paid to PBMs, and rightly so, all that does is benefit the manufacturers from not being a part of this conversation. 
So at some level then, I mean, when I look around and do comparative health policy uh, and look at what's going on in other countries, um, and I know the retort usually comes that, well, other countries don't develop nearly as much high impact, uh, you know, drugs as we do. But that aside, if I can put that aside, it, <laughs> is, it's just high level price regulation really the way to go? I mean, is, is that... I mean, that's what I seem to see in some other countries. Is this one of those moments where we need a broader national conversation? I know that's going to, you know, freak a bunch of people out. Is that a way to go? Antonio, you're up, man. <laughs> well, I mean, I do think that that federal policy is necessary in this, and 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 not to not to like scare on the Medicaid side. Just because I say I don't want Medicaid getting the discounts that are disproportionate to the rest of the market, it doesn't mean that we don't need drug coverage for for patients, and it doesn't mean that you know we should we should start charging Medicaid patients for their drugs either. Of course, we shouldn't do that. the The, the main issue is that because of the distortions in the marketplace, mm-hmm. you you have a system that influences prices to be higher. And so, to me, if we care about price, we have to figure out a way to actually incent those prices to be lower. And I mean, I've I've talked to manufacturers when they have competing drugs against one another, they don't compete to lower the price. When they're in direct competition with one another, they compete to raise the price and increase the discount. And so now, mm-hmm. if from a payer standpoint, your ability to obtain a higher and higher amount of that discount is what separates the winners from the losers. I think that that's inherently dysfunctional. And so I would like to get to a system where rather than drug makers competing to raise prices, they're competing to lower prices. And that is what we see in the generic sector. Generic drug makers are constantly working to undercut and kill one another. I mean, it is like it is a ruthless, ruthless industry. And that's because they're actually competing in an open, transparent marketplace where prices of competitors are known. It's not a say, but it's not perfect. And that's the key is everything I just said is not without its own collateral damage. But I think that you need system redesign before you could actually address the root problems. Yeah, so you seem to be calling for something more like um, the idealized market, right? Like a real market in, in some sense. Yeah, and, and with a market, you need the freedom not to cover certain medications. Uh, you need a well-aligned formulary design person. So I think Medicaid programs are actually very good at this in making good pragmatic decisions for what the best drug is at a net cost level rather than allowing you know uh, PBMs or insurance companies to make those decisions more and more Medicaid programs are acting as the fiduciary in that role. And the great thing about that is, yeah. is that if your drug sucks, they don't cover it. <laughs> or if there's something that's materially uh, cheaper, and maybe you're maybe you, you're a drug maker, you brought a new drug to market and slightly better, but it's like 20 times as expensive. The Medicaid program is going to say, we're not covering that. We're not going to do it. That's healthy because now we're now the drug makers get the message that don't bring shit drugs to market. Bring ones that actually improve the value proposition into the marketplace. Yeah, and I, I would build on that too to say I think part of that system redesign to create a more functional economy around these is going to require some level of government uh, intervention in how we guarantee some of the finances here. So it's not only on the discount side, in my estimation, but I think there's there's some real come to Jesus conversations we need to have around exclusivity 
how exclusivity gets maintained, the relationship, the sort of revolving door between FDA administrators and some of these companies, Mm -hmm. you know, like where they develop drugs and then they make a chewable version and then they get two years extra on a patent. That's that kind of stuff. Oh yeah. You know, (laughs) that kind of stuff could, we could do without to, to maybe progress along generics. And also I think, you know, it's not a perfect model, but this question of like, how much margin should the government really guarantee? Right. Um, not to stifle innovation, maybe something that's a little bit more responsive, because, of course, you want to have in- innovation take place. But also, you know, we've we've seen the divestment in the NIH for a long time. You know, yeah. why shouldn't there be more governmental oriented research and funding offset the cost of R&D? If the issue is we don't get enough profit for R&D, then, you know, subsidize the R&D part of it. And then ex- in exchange, we get a quicker to generic marketplace. You know, I think that there are ways that policy can can not only create better price signals and a better sort of producer-consumer relationship, because the consumers of the drugs aren't, from a monetary sense, aren't really people who are insured who are buying the drugs, right? It's the, the rest of the chain where most of the money gets figured out. Yep. So I think Antonio is pointing to that rest of the chain. I'm saying on the forefront too, we should be a little bit more um, uh, investigatory with our policies around how manufacturers establish that price and then what we could do to address those questions around, um, you know, profit margins, you know, and, yeah. you know, that includes the discount side, but I also think it includes the sort of guarantee marketplace side too. Yeah, I would totally agree. Patent reform is a huge component of this. Uh, I think patents are healthy, but the way that they are, that they, uh, that it works in the marketplace, it's just very easy to exploit. We see major issues with patent thickets. You know, Lauren, you brought a great, a great point. These, these add on products that extend patents. I mean, there's a lot of garbage that goes on in the industry. Patent exclusivity is very healthy, but it is highly, highly broken in implementation. So I often hear from students this question of, you know, well, aren't aren't there enough ideas out there? I mean, don't why why, why don't we know how to solve problem X or problem Y? And you know, there seem to be thousands of people studying things, writing journal articles, uh, companies undertaking research, all that kind of work. And you know, obviously, the political scientist in me says, well, because it's not just about ideas. There are there are lots of ideas out in the ether. There's also political will. There's also the various dynamics of, you know, uh, of, of industry stakeholder pressure groups, things like that. I, I, I wanted to just, uh, you know, as a final question, get you to talk both of you a little bit about that question, which is so when you, some of the ideas that we've floated today for solving this issue, um, making drugs more accessible and getting cost containment of some sort in place, however it comes, um, how does that relate to the politics of the question? Are, are there certain proposals you've floated that are more palatable in the current world uh, political environment here in Ohio or nationally than others? Uh, Lauren, you want to go first? No, go, go for it. I want to pull up a, a quote if I can, because <laughs> it's a good one. And I think, Hey, research, we love, we love re- on the fly research. So there, so there are, there have been, I think, very reasonable policy proposals, uh, you know, federally, I think HHS has actually done both, both, you know, uh, the, the Obama administration actually, I thought did some good things, uh, that they, that they put on the table. 
Actually, the Trump administration actually had some uh, some pretty good policy ideas to to change some of the incentives of the of the system, and we're already seeing good signals from the Biden administration as well. The problem is is that in a lot of these fights, and, and and Dan, you mentioned the stakeholder, you know, part of this, it really does mess things up. And I know this as somebody who came from the pharmacist side of things. Now, you know, you a lot of times, especially in overly complex marketplaces, it's hard enough to get the attention of people federally that just got elected to deal with abortion and gun control and whatever, whatever the hell else, you know, puts them on TV. And so there are a very small contingency of people that actually care about the nuance of this system and nuance is required to get in the door and actually be serious about fixing it. So that complexity already takes a lot of people out of the equation. And a lot of people then respond to which constituency, you know, they, 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 they care the most about. The problem in this system is that it's so multi-layered and so many entities within the drug supply chain are reliant on high prices that you are inevitably going to piss off two or the three of the people that you were wedded to all along. And so you can't just hit mm-hmm. the drug maker. You can't just hit the wholesaler. You can't just hit the PBM. You can't just hit the pharmacy. You hit one and you get lower prices. Everybody gets pissed off. And so before you know it, there's you're going mm-hmm. to upset too many people if you actually get the substantive changes that you want, which is lower drug costs, because the supply chain feeds off the cost, regardless of how much each one of those layers is getting. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. So, <laughs> But you don't do, but to be clear, you don't do pharmaceutical policy to make friends, right? I mean, but you need you need them to not um, sabotage your efforts, I guess. Uh, you don't run for office to not make friends. <laughs> that's I, I could yeah that's entirely right you know so I think um I was trying to look up this quote while Antonio was speaking and I it, it was funny because as he was saying and I'm like oh man this is gonna nail it so I'm reading this book called the the system uh, which is um, a book written about the Clinton administration's effort to reform healthcare so if anybody's a healthcare policy nerd out there I strongly recommend this book and you know they had all the mandate they had the polling they had the internal like um, team ready to go. They had the nuance, they had the detail. And there's this quote from someone sort of after the fact. And they said, uh, in regards to trying to reform healthcare policy, there are a hundred cul-de-sacs where you can write into the issue and drive around in it for days with people just shooting at you and screaming at you about what you have to take away from them. And then you never come out. And I think that's pretty accurate. (laughs) It's, you know, um, Will who who is that? Is that like Carville or something? It sounds like that that kind of. Uh, I think it was uh, at the time House Majority Leader Richard Gephardt of Missouri. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, not not too far off, but you know, I think it's it's a reality. You know, um, I think most Americans thirst for some level of change, right? With healthcare, they know something's wrong, and then they get into some detail, and then they become a little bit more destabilized and then they get in some more detail and they become more destabilized and policymakers are not immune to this. So, right. you know, when I think about Ohio state house options, I mean, if we're really talking about it, PBM reform in a state Medicaid program with a multi-year procurement process and an oversight entity took hundreds of hours of testimony just to get people to understand it. And even now, the people who asked for the reform don't fully understand what just happened, right? <laughs> and it's it's such a granular, nuanced issue that requires you to understand so much of this um, supply chain that it's it's hard to do. So, you know, I think 
when it comes to the types of reforms that we're talking about, Ohio's done a lot. The single formulary, you know, the, yeah. the unified PDL, um, the oversight and consolidation of PBMs. I think those are all good things. I think where you're going to see the future is, number one, greater transparency um, and monitoring of performance of these contracts. I think you may see uh, maybe more, quote unquote, value-based design around clinical efficacy of drugs. Um, also, the American Rescue Act had a big provision in it that eliminated yeah, yeah. the rebate cap for drugs. And that's some significant negotiation leverage for the state when it comes to you know the preferred drug list. Now, that may add some, some uh, consternation on the private side, right? Some cost shifting that takes place. Um, but I see those sorts of incremental pieces being immediately actionable. Uh, whether or not, you know, I can convince the state government to seize the means of production might be, <laughs> might be a harder push, you know? Um, but, you know, if it means that they have, you know, you don't have, you know, in a very real way, right? Um, if, a, if a parent wants to know why the epinephrine shot suddenly shot up 300%, and there is this policy tool out there to say, well, then you have to give us a critical supply through 1498 law. Maybe that's how you translate it. Um, mm. But that takes that takes a lot of, it's more than political will. It's a combination of will and nuance and then champions who understand this issue. That's great. Well, Antonio, do you want to get the last word in? Is there anything you just want to kind of add to, uh, to Lauren's? Uh... No, I, I think Ohio, I mean, look, I, 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 I've, I was a very big pessimist on Ohio getting anything right in this space. I had a lot of doors <laughs> shut my face under the under the Kasich administration, which is why the Columbus Dispatch blew this shit up. I mean, you know, th th we just got a lot of no's and we get a lot of a lot of pats on the head and pretending that you know there's not a problem. And you know, to Lauren's point, it's not just a PBM problem; it is a system design problem. And so the credit go to Director uh, Maureen Corcoran, I think, is is due in that. She is redesigning a system in a way that is uh, completely uh, kills the status quo of not just the way Ohio's been doing business, but states across the country who have been in the same autopilot in this system. Uh, so I think uh, I think the DeWine administration and Director Corcoran have really uh, it's hard to say they got it right because it's still in process. Mm -hmm. But the incentive alignment that they're creating, right. the oversight accountability to me, is all in the right direction. I, I think it's exciting because very rarely does Ohio lead. We like to pretend that Ohio leads a lot. But, but on this type of stuff, we don't. And, and right now, uh, we're in the driver's seat and everybody's watching, which is really, really cool. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. Well, Lauren, thanks for uh, sharing this paper with us to get the conversation rolling. There's so much more to say. Um, Antonio, I, I saw on your website that you're a master of fusing pop culture references into drug pricing research. We didn't hear any of that today exactly, so I got to have you back because um, <laughs> I, I want I want to hear that in, you know in progress. But hopefully, you know, we'll see some movement, and you can come back and tell us that you're you know to to Lauren that you, that your paper that all the right people read it and they got the point, and then um, we solved a few problems, even if it's just you know a couple first steps. So thanks so much for doing this guys. And we'll see you soon. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's our conversation folks. My apologies for the less than stellar quality of my audio. No one to blame, but myself, I was just trying to do too much and didn't position my mic right. We'll be sure to do better next time. 
Be sure to check out our show notes, which include a link to the report we discussed in the interview, but also past shows that are relevant to the conversation of pharmaceuticals and pharmaceutical pricing. This episode of Prognosis Ohio is hosted by me, Dan Skinner, and produced by me with editorial and production assistance from Claire McGee. Please take a minute to subscribe to the show and follow us on Twitter at at PrognosisOhio. As always, we encourage you to reach out with your suggestions and your feedback, and you'll find links on our website to do just that. As I like to mention, we welcome ideas for themes and guests you'd like to hear us talk about and with on the show. Okay, that's it for now. Thanks, everybody, and be well.